Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to be getting reading in verse 24. Jesus was teaching here, and this is, I'm not sure if this is the fourth or fifth in a, a number of parables here that he, he gave, but here in verse 24 it says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven. And there's the first kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, thou didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. And there's the second kingdom that's referenced. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? He said, Nay. Lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. But going down to verse 47, another parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. As I read these parables and, and pondered, a parable is, we're fairly familiar with that, that idea, but it's that of, of placing an object beside another object so that we can see a, a parallel. And here, it's, a, it's two physical illustrations to represent a spiritual truth. And they both speak of a coexistence of God's children and the unbeliever, of good and evil. Both of these rep, uh, refer to that, the wheat and tares and the, the fish, different kinds. And they coexist, but they will be sorted out at the end. And as we noted the first also denotes that there is an enemy who is at work in this kingdom in the kingdom of God to try to destroy it to thwart his purposes and my mind went to the two kingdoms the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world under the the influence of Satan I was recently reading about early Anabaptist beliefs and this point was there very prominent as well. You know, the Reformers, looking at the Catholic Church and the corruption that was there, they wanted to, to address the corruption, but it seems that they failed to recognize that they were dealing with two kingdoms. And the distinction was lost. And to them, the church was still to instruct 
the state on how to function. You know, many about us in Christians today still feel that way. There's a loss of an understanding that there's a kingdom of heaven and then there are the kingdoms of this world under Satan's control. I'd like to read a little bit of this account. There's a, actually some, some quotes here from writings from those, some of those early Anabaptists and then a little bit of commentary by the author of this. This book is called Anabaptist Theology, which is it's interesting because the premise of the book is that Anabaptists didn't have much theology as far as systematic theology. They believed things, but they didn't have this codification of this is what we believe and we just follow along in this way of doing things. It was more of, of an understanding of who God was that just flowed from them. So it's, it's kind of an interesting book in that, in that respect. But I would like to read here an, an article from written likely around 1577, thinking of this two doctrine of two worlds or two kingdoms. Between the Christian and the world, there exists a vast difference like that between heaven and earth. The world is the world, always remains the world, behaves like the world, and all the world is nothing but world. The Christian, on the other hand, has been called away from the world. He has been called never to conform to the world, never to be a consort, never to run along with the crowd of the world, and never to pull its yoke. The world lives according to the flesh and is dominated by the flesh. Those in the world think that no one sees what they were doing, hence the world needs the sword of the authorities. The Christians live according to the Spirit and are governed by the Spirit. They think that the Spirit sees what they are doing and that the Lord watches them. Hence, they do not need and do not use the sword among themselves. Is that the case with you? It's an interesting way of of bringing out some of these, these concepts. The victory of the Christians is the faith that overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 4. And the victory of the world is the sword by which they overcome whatever is in their way. To Christians, an inner joy is given. It is the joy in their hearts that maintains the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The world knows no true peace. Therefore, it has to maintain peace by the sword and force alone. The Christian is patient. As the apostle writes, 1 Peter 1, for one, as Christ has suffered, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. The world arms itself for the sake of vengeance and accordingly strikes out with the sword. Among Christians, he is the most genuine who is willing to suffer for the sake of God. The world, on the contrary, thinks him the most honorable who knows how to defend himself with the sword. To sum up, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If to be a Christian would reside alone in words and and an empty name, and if Christianity could be arranged as to please the world, if furthermore Christ would permit what is agreeable to the world and the cross would have to be carried by a sword only, then both authorities and subjects, in fact all the world would be Christians. Inasmuch, however, as a man must be born anew, must die in baptism to his old life, 
We must rise again with Christ into a new life in Christian conduct. Such a thing cannot and shall not be. It is easier, says Christ, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, by whom is meant here the authorities in particular, to enter the kingdom of God or true Christianity. A very clear understanding that the the Christian... The world at that time, you know, we here, we, some would say this is a Christian nation, had been. And yet we see the secularism, we know that that's not the case. And yet here in that time, the church, or in the name of, of Christ, there was an effort made to be the government. And like I say, we don't face that quite as they did. And yet, do we understand that it is two diametrically opposed forces and systems that work. A little bit of the author's notes here. He says, this dualism of heaven and hell, Christ and Belial, is seen in in uh, in different areas and even in the the Essenes in early Christianity and carried throughout the the early the old evangelical brotherhoods the the true church strain if you follow the church history of the Catholic Church and there were there were always remnants of people that didn't jump onto that and and didn't succumb to that pressure of of the the Catholic Church the Waldensians was one there were several others. And, and so this is a background that has run through Christianity. It's in the scriptures. But it says here that we see the tension between the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven on one hand and the kingdom of the prince of this world or the kingdom of darkness on the other. If the reborn believer decided for the former kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, his theology was clearly marked. It is generally known as kingdom theology. It is the hidden theology of Jesus himself and his deepest message. Be prepared, Jesus says in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. The kingdom is imminent. It is close. But only the pure will enter into it and all the rest will perish. This is definitely an eschatological idea and requires some effort to decide either for or against the world. Yet it is a glorious idea and far superior to any worldly philosophy a promise not of a yonder after death, but of a present possibility. Are you living in the kingdom of heaven? Or is it something you just look forward to and say, well, when I get to heaven? This kingdom theology fits almost perfectly to everything. Excuse me. This kingdom theology requires a close brotherhood of committed disciples as the citizens of the expected kingdom. It also implies discipleship is basic and finally makes the believer aware of the eternal warfare between the children of light against the children of darkness. So what does this mean? Two kingdoms. We have to make a choice. We have to decide which kingdom we're going to live in. You know, Jesus had mentioned here, Jesus' basic message, 
And I believe over 30 times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven. The parable set forth, but there's other places. The kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? As sinners, we have all been part of the world and its system. But as believers, we have transferred our allegiance from that kingdom of the world into the kingdom of heaven. And this must affect how we look at the world around us. There's a lot that was in my mind that I'm not able to get down and probably conveyed as I ought. But to, my, my burden is that we see the dichotomy, the, the struggle, and we see that the influence on us is real in, in many and varied ways. You know, we don't, we don't as, the, as the phrase is, see a devil behind every bush, but we do see the struggle between good and evil and our, our place in it. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This brings out our place as God's children, as disciples of Christ. The contrast. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. There is laid out the citizenship of the other kingdom. But God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. A transformation there. And as I read that, and I had to think of the parable that we read first. Wheat and tares. One, good, fruitful, the other, detrimental and, and a problem. And I see here that, praise the Lord, we can become transferred, transformed from tares into wheat. From one kingdom, from the enemy's seed to the fruit of God's seed. The distinction between two different states of being, two allegiances. In Colossians 1, also another passage that points this out very pointedly. In Colossians 1, I'll just begin reading it in verse 12, breaking in. It says, Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So, when we become part of this kingdom, this translation happens 
You know, we don't just change regiments in the army. We change sides. We have a different commander-in-chief. There is a marked delineation between the power of darkness and the kingdom of his dear son. In Acts 26, Paul was receiving a mission from mission statement basically from, from Jesus. And he says, Jesus is speaking to him. It says that he will send him out as a witness. And then he says, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Opposing forces. And when we change our allegiance through the blood of Christ in a renewed mind, our focus in life and our drive in life must also change. The world. What is the world? I think that's a very simple term for this other kingdom. The kingdom of darkness is the world. And in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, verses we're all very familiar with. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Love, love, and lust are mentioned here. And I think to sum that up into one idea is that of desire. What I want. What I focus on. And it says here that if we love the world and the things that are in the world, the love of the Father is not in us. And I think that comes a lot closer home than I want to admit sometimes. Because we live in the flesh. We live in temporal bodies and we have desires and, and needs and these are good they're okay they're god-given but what is my drive what is my passion is it for things is it for my pleasure and enjoyment or is it to see the kingdom of god grow to see the word spread Your desire is at, the, is, is at the heart of our human experience. And what we desire will ultimately determine where we go and our destiny. And I think desire is a good gauge of our spiritual direction and vitality. What do we desire? What do we focus on? Going back again to this, this switch from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven. And I, would, I, would, I believe that this change of, of allegiance is not unnoticed by the world. And the Apostle Peter has a very practical message as, as I've meditated in, in Peter's writing. It's, it's so rich and full. The call to spiritual, the, a practical walk because of spiritual life and a calling of, of holiness, of obedience, and Christ-likeness. 
However, he also makes it very clear that while this, this is what God expects, that suffering is a result of this decision. I'd like to consider a number of passages in Peter, looking at them briefly, that convey this truth. If you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. As we are part of the kingdom of heaven, what should we expect? First Peter 2, beginning verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's two things here from this, these two verses. Number one is, am I a stranger or is this my home turf? I said, we live here, but is our focus here? And number two, I believe that our our heart's passion will be evidenced because it says here that that people will see what we do. And while we may be currently blessed for what we do here and now, I don't believe it's always going to be that way. Moving on down to verse 18. Says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if ye be buffeted, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow. His steps. Now this right here, this concept is totally contrary to our natural man. One thing that I find in my thoughts, but especially in thoughts of of children, my own children and, and others as well, because it's universal, and that is when something goes against me, life isn't fair, right? You ever heard that before? You ever said it? That's not fair. When you be buffeted for your faults, so when you do something wrong, when you make a mistake and you have to deal with the faults, well, that's understandable. But it says here, when you do well and you suffer for it and you take it patiently, and that may be a key phrase right there, that it's acceptable to God. Our mindset, when things don't go as we want or as we think they should or as they should, when they aren't fair. What is our attitude? One thing to keep in mind, though, that God is just and he will reward those that diligently seek him. God is not blind to suffering and to the unfairness and injustice of this world. 
But this is the call of those that are part of the kingdom of heaven, to be willing to suffer patiently for what they did not do wrong. Moving on down to chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, have compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. See, these are characteristics of this member of the kingdom of heaven. Not rendering evil for evil, nor railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak against, speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath suffered once hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God and being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Again, Christ, our example, he suffered once for sin. He was totally just. He had done nothing wrong. He had no faults. And yet we commemorate today his suffering, his death, what he gave himself to. In chapter 4, Christ's suffering again. Verse 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. I think that's a key as we consider suffering and what Christ went through it was his mindset, his renewed mind, his, not his renewed mind, his pure mind, but his mind of commitment to, to his father. And he t patiently took his suffering. It says, For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time to the flesh, to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life, here again we have this, this holding up of two separate ways. Two separate lives, two separate kingdoms. Focus. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. You see, they have a focus, and we have a focus. Jumping down to verse 12. Beloved, 
Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. This concept of suffering is not very, very uh, real in one sense. Now, I found it interesting in reading more of, of Anabaptist thought process that some considered some of this suffering, a, uh, an at, uh, a part of this suffering was that struggle against sin. So that as we face temptations and as we deal with, with life and, and, and what would come, that we struggle, we suffer as we yield our lives to the Holy Spirit rather than to the flesh. So there's a sense of suffering. But you know, we live in a land in times of unprecedented plenty and comfort. My guess is here that pretty much every one of us has everything we need and most of what we want. I would say that it has not always been so, and I believe it will not always be so. Why is there so much suffering here in 1 Peter mentioned? And most of the suffering that I see is because of a stance for truth, because of being a member of the kingdom of heaven and being a citizen of God's kingdom. What is our security? Is it our things and our circumstances, our surroundings, our plenty and comfort? Or is it my relationship with my Savior that gives me ultimate joy and purpose? I believe we need to remind ourselves of the reality of suffering and that it is not new to God. He knows about it. And it's not new to His people because they've experienced it throughout time. Many of our forefathers paid with their lives for their commitment to truth. And yet to read their testimonies of peace and of surety, unmoved when confronted. They knew what they believed and stood on the truth no matter the cost. You know, 
when we're not challenged for our faith, our faith can be almost anything. It can be very fragile. It can be unexplainable. But it doesn't really matter because no one challenges us. But if we face questioning, we face confrontation, or we, even in the course of sharing the good news of the gospel, are asked questions, we have to know what we believe. And that is a strengthening aspect of the conflict. We live in an age when truth is under attack. It has always been, but I believe that we're seeing a very clear evidence of the working of the powers of darkness. There's a lot going on in this nation apart from the rest of the world, but in the rest of the world as well. And the limited Christian values that were once recognized in this nation are rapidly disappearing. You know, many would jump up and demand their constitutional rights to be respected, would join forces with those that are of the kingdom of this world to try to change a course. You know, external pressures will not change the course of this world under the powers of darkness. It's only a spirit directed change in the hearts of people that can change their direction and their destiny. The future is unknown to us, but it is indeed known to God. How relevant is this message for us today? And you know, I know that we don't experience the suffering that many people in the world are facing today in places where, where it, is, it is illegal to meet as we are here. But if we know these things and we're refreshed in our minds and we believe that suffering is not out of the will of God, outside of the will of God, that it is it is to be expected. I believe it will help us to be ready for what may come and to be ready here and now to do things that maybe we shy away from because we're afraid of suffering. Because we're afraid of, of standing out and afraid of being buffeted. I would like to look yet. I mentioned the Constitution or rights. I'd like to look at a bit of the Constitution of the Kingdom of Heaven, as Matthew 5 has been called. Just read a number of verses there yet. These are Jesus' words as he came and ministered to people, calling them to this kingdom. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 10, it says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let's sing that song, This Little Light of Mine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. The Anabaptists believed, the early Anabaptists, that as I referenced earlier, the kingdom of heaven isn't just something we look forward to, but it is here and now, in a degree. Not in its completeness, but as we, as we live out the characteristics of our Savior with each other in brotherhood, we are a light, we are a city. that is set on a hill. Jumping down to verse 38, Matthew 5. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Citizens of the kingdom. As we partake of communion today, I believe that we again pledge our allegiance to our Savior to our Lord, to our captain. 
And we also express our desire to follow him and take on his character. We look briefly at some of those things. There's, there's a lot in scripture of, of what it means to be a, a disciple. But again, we commit to identifying with him. And with that, we commit to identifying with him in suffering. May God use our faithfulness to fulfill the prayer of Jesus. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for your attention and your prayers. May God bless you.